There's something else I've been wondering about. And that, it, it actually kind of, kind of came to the surface last week. Last week we were talking about the prologue in John, and there was, there was good news and there was bad news. The good news was in verse 12. As many as receive Jesus, to them gives he the right to become children of God, God's own children, God's own family. That's a wonderful thing. To everyone who believes on his name. And then he talks more about how they are born as children of God. He said they're not born of blood or by human descendancy. It doesn't come from being born into a Christian family. Your own children will not be believers just because they're your children and you're a believer. That, that they're not born out of the will of the flesh, out of my own desire to be in God's family. That will not cause me to be born into God's family. That's kind of surprising. And they're not born because of somebody else's desire that they would be part of God's family. Then how? How can anyone believe? How does anyone become God? That, that's, the, that's the problem that that verse raises. And the answer is, they are born of God. And that's what I want to unpack. That one phrase really is what I want to unpack a little bit this morning. How does that happen? I want to do, I want to go through three different episodes, three different encounters that are featured in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, from verse 19 and following, there's three different main encounters in which we see how does this happen that anyone can believe? How does it happen that somebody comes to faith? If they are born of God, then how does it work, and is there anything for me to do? We could spend time talking, talking debating back and forth, sounded like, sounding like Calvinists and Methodists, but that's really not the point this morning. How does it happen? There's three key elements. So let me give them to you right up front. Try to be as clear as I can here, because this is wonderful. There are three key elements that I want you to walk away from this morning. I want you to watch for these three things as we go through. How can anybody believe? Three key elements that we'll see in each of these three episodes, and that is God's witness, somebody telling, but what are they telling? What are they witnessing to? They're telling concerning Jesus something they know that God has shown them. They're telling something about Jesus that is in agreement with, point number two, God's Word. So there's God's witness with God's Word, and, and at the surface, that ought to do it. That ought to be enough. Somebody can hear God's witness telling God's Word, and they could believe and they will be saved, except they will not, unless God meets them there. Unless God himself intervenes in our running away as fast as we can human hearts. So there's God's witness, there's God's word, and God is working in the midst of it. Bringing people back to himself, bringing humanity home. How can anyone believe? That's what we're going to see this morning, those three key things. So I said we're going to look at three episodes, three elements where those three things, a witness, God's word, and God himself confirming to faith. Now, because there are some good, solid, exegetical seminary students out here, I need to give a disclaimer before we go any further because you'll talk to me afterwards. I'm not trying to say that John's purpose in writing John chapter 1 was to show you these three things. Otherwise, they would stand out much more clearly. You good with that? All right. 
But John's purpose is really clear. John's purpose is these things are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's John's purpose. Now, as I look out among you, most of you I know. I see you. And, and, and knowing you, I, I know that most of us here this morning have believed in Jesus Christ, have life in his name. What you want to do is to step further into that life. You want to take next steps in his life, life with him. And that's where these three things come in. As you, as, as you look at this chapter from that perspective of look what God is doing in bringing humanity home and bringing people to receive Jesus, believe in him, and becoming children of God, you're going to see that God is using witnesses like you, using from his word what you know, and God himself is meeting them, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So let's jump in. Let's, let's uh, take that first episode. We're going to start with John the Baptist who comes baptizing in the wilderness. We're going to start in, in John chapter 1 and verse 19. So if you want to open a Bible and follow along in John chapter 1, we'll start at verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Or maybe it was a little more aggressive. Maybe it's, who do you think you are? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who send us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John is baptizing in the River Jordan, across from Jericho. He's on the, on the out-of-Israel side of the Jordan River, across from Jericho, roughly about the same place where Israel first camped when they were about to walk across the Jericho. Remember, going through on dry land and entering into the land that God had promised to give them. They entered that land. They traveled about in it. They fought many battles under Joshua. But along the way, through Israel's history, they never found God's rest in the land that God had promised them because they'd never fully trusted God for it. And they ended up getting beat around, chased around within the land, finally expelled out of the land. And then they got to come back in for a while. And then the Romans came along and messed everything. And they never experienced God's rest. And here, at this time, when John is there baptizing in the wilderness, there's this expectancy. Is Messiah coming? So here is John, across the Jordan from Jericho. He's baptizing and he's calling people to believe in God's promise that God's kingdom and God's king are coming. Now this whole baptism thing, that's important. Baptism has a, has a long Old Testament background. Baptism in the Old Testament and in Judaism was a cleansing, it was a washing. If somebody who was not born Jewish was to become part of Israel, fully under the law of Moses as an Israelite, other nations could join in, but they had to become an Israelite. And how you did that was to go through this washing of baptism. And you, you had to fully immerse. It was an immersion baptism. But it wasn't just for people who would convert to Judaism to Judaism, but it was also anybody within the Jewish religion who was unclean for any means. 
And for various reasons, that might occur regularly. And yet in that uncleanness, after the time of uncleanness, you would go to what was called a mikvah. We would probably call it a baptismal. And there were steps going down in, and you would go down in, and you would fully immerse yourself all the way down so that every hair on your head was fully covered. For some of you, that wouldn't be a problem. Some of you ladies, you would have to go further down, right? And, and, but it must be fully covered. And then you come back up, and you have been cleansed. You are clean. Not because you washed away dirt from the body, but because you, in the ceremonial washing, you're confessing, I am unclean, God. I need your means of making me clean. That's what's going on. Now, related to that, even is New Testament baptism today, that we follow John and then Jesus, his disciples, baptize his followers. And, and that baptism is also a confession that we need God's cleansing. In fact, Peter puts it in those terminologies, but he clarifies, baptism now saves you not the washing away of dirt from the flesh, but of an appeal to God for a clean conscience, forgiveness. Baptism for us is, is having become a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, then I, I, I go through baptism to confess, to declare that faith, and it's been unpacked theologically even more since then. Paul described it out that when I'm baptized, I'm not only confessing to God that I need his cleansing in Jesus, but I have been joined with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection to new life for my cleansing. It's very specific. Still immersion, and that's why. All that to say this, well, here comes John telling Israelites who were Israelites already that they need to come out of the land immerse themselves in God's cleansing, God's washing, to be ready to receive his promise. And to those who sit up in Jerusalem and think they've already arrived, this is very insulting. This is scandalous. And they get together, whether, whatever background they come from, this rocks their apple cart. And they, 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 they come out to John, they say, who do you think, do you think we're like that Syrian in the Old Testament, that Syrian general who was a leper, who comes to Elisha and asks how to be clean, and Elisha tells him to go dip in the Jordan seven times? He doesn't even want to do it, it's so insulting. Finally, his servant convinces him to, when he comes up the seventh time, what? His skin is baby soft, baby clean. That leprosy has washed away, and he is clean. God has made him new. There's a picture there for us. God makes us new through faith in Jesus Christ. But there's, are you saying we're like that leper, Gentile, Syrian, that we have to go and be baptized again? Who do you think you are, John? Who, do you think you're the Messiah or something? And he says, no. Well, then do you think you're Elijah, the great prophet, who's to return and who's going to come before Messiah comes and prepare the way before him? Malachi said that Elijah would come. John says, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, then, are you that prophet? And you say, what prophet? But everybody then knew what prophet is that prophet, the prophet, the one that Moses wrote about all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. He says, the Lord your God will send to you from himself a prophet like unto Moses, a prophet as good or even better than Moses, and he's the one you listen to. Basically, what Moses is saying is, you listen to me all the way through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and everybody. You listen to me, even the prophets have to, until that prophet comes. And that prophet's name is Jesus. John says, it's not me. 
They say, well, who do you think you are then? On what basis do you do this that you do? Say what you say. You ever heard that from somebody? Come down from the high steps and they say, who do you think you are saying these things that you say? John says, I, I'm the guy Isaiah talked about. When Isaiah turns in his book from condemnation, despair, and judgment is coming, and he turns in chapter 40 to comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says the Lord. John says, I am that voice crying out in the wilderness saying, make the way straight, prepare the path, the straight way of the Lord, the King is coming. John says, that's who I am. I'm the one who's telling you that Jesus is coming. Notice that John's witness is very personal, it's very passionate, and it's also very biblical. We could spend hours unpacking what he's meaning in these references to these, the Messiah and the prophets, what is all packed into this baptism that John has been doing, and what that means for the people that are coming. We could spend a lot of time unpacking all that. But, but here's his witness. Here's a witness that is living out and speaking out from God's word, and then God himself joins in the witness. You say, well, we're not sure we saw that yet. Okay, well, let's look at, let's pick it up in verse 29. Jump down to verse 29, and he, and he explains something more about how, as he was baptizing there in the Jordan, how he recognized Christ when he came. The next day, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He existed before me, John says, even though John was born first. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me, God the Father, said, the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So here is John in the midst of his witnessing there at the Jordan across from Jericho. And he's telling the people what he has to tell them. Prepare the king and his kingdom is coming. And as he does that, God himself shows up. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father speaks. The Spirit descends. Here's Jesus confirming everything that he's been saying. There's a witness telling what he knows from God's word because God has spoken and yet God himself shows up to bring it home. Let's quickly jump ahead. You could see that already. John could say, well, I'm really nobody here. I'm just here to point people towards Jesus, God's son, our savior. The spirit descends upon him. God himself is at work. God himself is bearing witness. We haven't even mentioned the whole Lamb of God thing, right? That's probably the best part of this whole passage, but we're going we're gonna to come back to that in a, in a few minutes. But first, let's, let's run ahead to the next episode. In verse 35, John is sending two of his disciples away. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at as Jesus as he walked by, and he says, Look, the Lamb of God 
And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, well, what are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour, about 4 p.m. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, he's not called Simon Peter yet, almost. He's called Simon, but he's called Simon Peter when John is writing this later. He first found his own brother, Simon, Andrew does, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. Well, how do you know that? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock. Cephas is the Hebrew Aramaic, it means rock. Peter is the Greek word, which means Pet- comes from Petros, which means rock. There you go. You guys have heard this before. What am I doing? Well, Andrew's sitting there. Peter? You see, Peter's not really the most stable personality in town. Peter is is a bit impetuous. Peter is a bit eager and yet unreliable. Peter is the one who makes bold claims but can't follow through. Peter's the one who's going to say, I'll lay down my life for you, and then he denies the Lord three times. Peter is the rock, and what Jesus is doing is Jesus is calling out of him something that's not even there yet. This is who Jesus is going to make Peter to be. And Jesus is going to make Peter into that one who stands before thousands on Pentecost. Jesus is going to make Peter to be that one who's going to be part of the foundation on which he's going to build his church, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's who Jesus is going to make Peter to be. And so it goes on. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So now they're going to go north up the Jordan River Valley, up to the Sea of Galilee, probably around the eastern side of it because they're going to wind up in the city of Bethsaida, which is a fishing village up on the north end. They decide to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida. And this is the city of Andrew and Peter. That's probably why they're going to Bethsaida. They know some people there now. They've got some connections. That's a good place to start in Galilee. Philip found Nathaniel. And he says to him, before they get very far, Philip has got to tell somebody, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, rather, the son of Joseph. And, and, and Nathaniel says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And so, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, look, here's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael says to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answers him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are obviously the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? (laughs) You haven't seen anything yet. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, I, will say, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what is going on here? There's much to this story, so let's, let's, let's kind of talk it through. Here, first of all, you have, uh, you have, you have um, 
Andrew going and telling Simon, and now they go up to Bethsaida, and now Philip introduces him to Nathaniel. Philip goes to Nathaniel. Philip is the witness. He's got to tell somebody, we have found the one that Moses and the prophets have written about. There's the witness according to the word. And yet, Philip's going to a skeptic. Nathaniel's sitting there, and Nathaniel's not only a skeptic, he's, he's, he's not sure what he believes. He's looking out among his people, and he's got a pretty dim view of them. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that little, small, insignificant village that Moses and the prophets don't even write anything about, they don't even mention, how can anything related to God's promise come out of Nazareth, first of all? But Nathaniel seems to have a pretty dim view of Israel as a whole. He's probably looked at society where it is, and he's wondering, can anything good come out of any of this? There's a lot of people around us that feel like that. Can anything good come out of any of this mess, the way things are now? Well, Jesus um, sees him coming, and he, and he, he he connects with Nathaniel where Nathaniel's been, where he's been thinking. He connects with Nathaniel along the story of Jacob, who is the father of all of Israel. Jacob's name was Israel. But the word name Jacob means the deceiver. And he says to Nathaniel, look, here's a true Israelite. Here's a genuine Israelite, in contrast, in whom there is no deceit. You see, a nation descended from a deceiver. Here's a good one, he says. I think Jesus is toying with him a little bit, inviting him along. And Nathaniel seems to feel this way about him, that he's maybe a step above the crowd at large because he says, how do you know me? How do you know me so well? And Jesus, now he takes a step further. It's kind of like what we'll see in the women at the well later on, that he takes the next step into Nathaniel's life and a bit inside his head. And he says, before, when you were sitting under the fig tree in the to sit under the fig tree is its own kingdom messianic rest um, illustration, but I'm not going to try to unpack that. But before, when you were sitting under the fig tree, when, when, when Philip came to you, I saw you there. I saw you before you knew me. That's what Jesus is saying to him. And, and, and Nathaniel is connecting the dots. There's more than what we read in the story. This is an abbreviated version because it compels Nathaniel to this confession. You are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. He's quoting some of that terminology that we read in Zephaniah. That God who is the rescuer, her deliverer, he is the king of Israel. He is God in their midst. And that's what Nathaniel is now saying about Jesus. And so, Philip has this encounter with Nathaniel. If Nathaniel's going to believe, he's going to need Jesus' help. Perfect. Philip brings him to Jesus, and Jesus takes it from there. You see, Jesus is going to show him even more of who he is. He says, you believe because of that? He says, you're going to see greater things than this. He continues with this theme of Jacob. I wonder if while Nathaniel is sitting under the fig tree, if he's been pondering over this story about Jacob, which occurs in the book of Genesis around chapter 28 when Jacob is having to flee this land, this land that God promised to his grandfather Abraham. But, but Jacob himself has fallen out of the family. He has lied to his father Isaac. He's deceived him. And his, his brother Esau now wants to kill him. And he's having to flee for his life out of the land to hide with his uncle. 
And on his way out, he's wondering, will I ever be able to come home again? With what I've done, with the mess I've made, will I ever be able to come home? God meets him there. And he has a dream there at that place called Bethel. And he dreams, and in this dream, he sees heaven opened. And he sees there's a ladder, there's a way up and down. And he sees angels coming down from heaven, from God's presence, and angels going back up into God's presence. There's access, there's a way. And in the midst of this dream, God speaks to him from heaven, and he says, he promises that the promise to Abraham, the promise to Isaac, is the promise to Jacob as well. That God is going to do for him what God told him that he would do. That the blessing given to Abraham is Jacob. Jacob's blessing too. God will bring him home. Okay, I told you all that to tell you this. Jesus reminds him of Jacob's vision. He says, you're going to see greater things than that. You're going to see angels descending and, and ascending on the Son of Man. You're going to see the heavens open, and you're going to see there is access into the very presence of God, and its name is Jesus. Jesus is that ladder into heaven. The angels are ascending and descending on him. And Jesus is the one to confirm that the promise of Abraham, the promise of blessing through Abraham about, to all nations is going to come through Jesus. That's what he's saying there. You're going to see far greater things than this. Now, we can go back to John's earlier testimony. The things about Jesus were written by Moses and the prophets. And Moses wrote very early about that promise through Abraham. Once he gets through the whole creation and then there's a flood and humanity's a mess and then God chooses Abraham and there the promise starts. In Abraham will all nations be blessed. And it's going to come through one of his descendants. But how can that be? One of, one of, one of Abraham's future sons, one of his offspring in his line, how can that be? Because Abraham doesn't have a son. Abraham is old enough that he's not able to have a son. His wife Sarah has been barren her whole life. How could they have a son? And God's going to give them a miraculous son because God himself is going to have a miracle son. They think he was born the son of Joseph, but he's the son of God. And God gives them a miracle son. And then along the way, God gives instructions to Abraham to offer his son Isaac. How can this be? How will God fulfill his blessing to make Abraham a blessing and to bless all nations through this descendant who would come? How will that happen if the descendants have to come through Isaac and now he's told to take Isaac's life, to offer him up? Hebrews tells us that Abraham believes that God, if he does this, God is, God is intending to raise him even from the dead. Isaac's wondering about this too, as you can imagine, as they're going off to the mountain of Moriah together, that mountain which, by the way, later on, that's where the temple's going to be built. Those are the mountains where Calvary is going to occur, where the Son of God himself is going to be offered. But they're on those mountains of Moriah as they're going, hiking up the hill. And Isaac says to his father, here's the fire, here's the wood, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Mark in Genesis 22, Abraham's answer to his son Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. 
God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And on they go. And just about as Abraham is about to plunge that knife, God stops him. And God provides a substitute that day for Isaac to be offered. And it's a ram caught in some thorns by his horns. It's not a lamb. It's a ram. And ever since, through the rest of the Old Testament, we're watching, we're looking, we're waiting. Where is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Where is this Lamb of God that God will provide himself a lamb? And we watch through the Passover lambs who pass over sin. We watch through the burnt offering lambs who cover sin but never remove it, never take it away. It has to be repeated week after week, year after year. Where will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world until John points him out? Here's the one. Christ, our Passover, who will be sacrificed for us. But better than being merely passing over, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a message you could share. The Lamb of God who took away my sin didn't just cover it over, but has removed it. It's gone as far as the east is from the west. That's a message you could share because God does save We can witness because God is working. We can tell what we know from God's word, even though our understanding, like Philip's, isn't perfect. We can tell it because God himself is working in our midst. God's witness, God's word, and God himself working. Bringing others to faith in Christ. Right here, right around us. As many as believe, To them he gives the right to become the sons of God. They are not saved because of their their childhood heritage. They are not saved because they want to be. They are not saved because you and I want them to be. But they are saved as you and I witness according to God's word. And God himself meets them there and takes it to the heart. I remember a teacher telling me years ago, your job is to get it to the eardrum. And the Holy Spirit's going to have to take it from there. That's freeing. But it's also confidence building because the Holy Spirit does take it from there. God is at work. That one thing that we know about God, that we learn about God, knowing God from looking in Jesus, what do we see? We see God actively, passionately working in the world to bring lost humanity home. That is your confidence, that he will use your witness in his word by his working. God will do it. You can say something because God is doing something. Maybe your question this morning is not, how could anyone be saved? Maybe you're asking, how could I be saved? Could I really be saved? John answered that question in the way that it was true for his own followers. It was true for a rough-around-the-edges fisherman named, named Simon. It was true for skeptics like Nathaniel. And the answer is this. Look to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look what God himself has done. Look how God himself has provided. God is the Lamb for you me 
That's what God has done. Is there any doubt that God is working in the midst of this world? That's something we can grab hold of. That's something you can believe. That's something that you can then tell somebody else about. As simply as you know it, Jesus himself has taken away my guilt, taken away my shame, and they can believe it too. And God himself will meet them there. We come to this table today, and this table is like that. This table is an, it's a remembering table, and it's an invitation table. In fact, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on forward. We're going, to, we're going to start a song here. Even while we're beginning with the servers, we're going to start a song that says, that invites it and calls, come to the table. You see, we don't want you to be an Israelite or a church person in whom there is pretending. I do this thing because this is the thing that we do when we come to church, but I'm not sure that it really means anything for me. No, we want this to mean everything for you. We want this to mean for you that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world and my sin, my shame. We invite you to come to this table. How do you do that? It doesn't take steps. What it takes is, God, I believe that your Son, Jesus, is the Son of God, my Savior. I believe you, God, about your Son, Jesus. That's what it takes. It's as simple as that. God's witness about, from his word about his Son, Jesus, as we step into it in this table, remembering that he gave his life, his body for us. He poured out his blood in death for us. And you can accept that for you. God's lamb becomes my lamb because God, I believe you because of Jesus.